Okay. There are no uh, pressing announcements. Uh, Presbytery is coming up April 5th, so half your, two-thirds of your session will be gone. You can pray for our travels as we'll be driving up uh, to Hamill, uh, North Dakota, South Dakota? I don't know. It's all the Dakotas. It's a long drive, so. Pardon? No. This is why they have professionals do this. The pastor just talks. Okay. Other than that, we have the call to worship. The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of them that fear him. He also will hear their cry and will save them. O thou that hearest prayer, unto thee shall all flesh come. Let's bow our hearts and heads in silent preparation for worship. Let us stand and let us sing Psalm 99b, 99b.
let us pray. We indeed worship you, God, our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not only on the Lord's Day, but throughout the week. And we're thankful, God, for the peace and prosperity enough that we can come here uh, without uh, harm or difficulty, Lord. You've protected and watched over us in our travels. And we ask, God, for a special measure of your Spirit this morning, Lord, that we would draw nigh unto you and be strengthened and grow in sanctification. For your glorious namesake, we pray in accordance to the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Glory be to the Father and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, it is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We have the responsive reading, Psalm 39, which is an insert. There's a prayer list on the backside, Psalm 39 and the other. We will say it responsively, that is uh, the traditional call and response. I will read the bold-faced. I said I will guard my ways, lest I sin with my tongue. I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle, while the wicked are before me. My heart was hot within me while I was musing the fire burned, then I spoke with my tongue. Indeed, you have made my days as hands breaths, and my age is nothing before you. Certainly every man at his best state is but vapor. And now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. I was mute. I did not open my mouth, because it was you who did it. When with rebukes you correct man for iniquity, you make his beauty melt away like a moth. Surely every man is vapor. Remove your gaze from me that I may regain strength before I go away and am no more. And so in this lament of David, we read how he is silent before the wicked. Perhaps uh, he knows that he's no he can do to persuade them or hold them back. And as with many of the Psalms, we know very little of the specifics, which is in uh, the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. So that is still very much applicable for us today for whatever situation we find ourselves in. Sometimes we may be uh, mute and silent before the wicked. 
And yet he cries out before the Lord, probably in prayer, uh, recognizing that God is in control and that the wicked heap up riches and uh, don't know the end of their own life. But he does. He knows that God is there and his hope is in him. And that uh, although he is mute, he still submits to God for verse 9. It was you who did it. You are in charge, even if the wicked think they're in charge, even if I can do nothing and feel like uh, I am outnumbered and outgunned. And yet you are there, and I pray that I will submit to you. For I am a stranger. We are all strangers and sojourners as our fathers were. That is, this world is temporary for us. Do not get lost into this world, but rather keep down the path of God's kingdom. Let us pray. Here we are, Lord, as your people, called out by your name and gospel and the power of the Spirit in our hearts and lives, Lord. We're grateful for your providence, God. We're grateful for the directing of all things, for your glory and for our good, for your faithfulness, for your patience towards us, Lord, and for the guiding of all things, for your glory. We do acknowledge our sin, God, how we have been unfaithful at times, and that we have, Lord, perhaps been malcontents and complaining too much, Lord, and forgetting that you are in charge, God. Help us, Lord, to overcome these and other various sins that some of us struggle more than others, perhaps, Lord, and others that have not been spoken of to acknowledge, God, that we are sinners in need of your redemption, uh, to pray for forgiveness, to acknowledge our violations of your holy law and thought, word, and deed, somehow, in some way, God. Help us daily to fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil, to be purified by your word. Your word is truth, and to grow thereby, to be renewed in the image of Christ Jesus is our desire and hope. We ask, Lord, for more of that in our lives more growth and sanctification, more obedience, more love, more grace, more kindness towards one another. We lift up our concerns in prayer, Lord, for the home missions, and we ask, God, that you would work, continue to work in the denomination we are in, Lord, for your good and for the growth of your kingdom, to pray for the national level, Lord, and the committee therein, to help plant churches, to help find godly ministers who have the the drive and who have the training by your providence, Lord, uh, to be men to establish churches, to go out and to find <clears throat> unbelievers and Christians, Lord, who are striving to grow and to find a faithful church in the neighborhood, to help establish a new church in those cities and the countrysides or wherever else we can do these things, Lord. Give those committees, that committee, Lord, wisdom, and not just them, Lord, but the Presbytery and local churches that can also and are also often involved in home missions and establishing new churches here in America. Help them, Lord, to understand that the times and the seasons they find themselves in, Lord, so that they can uh, talk to and understand and draw people unto uh, Christ Jesus. And again, church members, Lord, who are Christians rather, who are seeking for uh, a faithful church, God, that we would. Establish such faithful churches, both in doctrine and in practice, Lord, in spite of what others uh, may think, what others may complain about, what we believe or don't believe, or how we practice God. May we stay true to your word. May our missionaries resist uh, such temptations around them and pressures upon them, Lord, to water down the truth and the whole truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask, God, that you would help help us with funds during this the tightening economy, this difficult economy we're finding ourselves in more and more, Lord. And we ask for continued unity and wisdom, Lord, to know how to use the means, causes, and occasions unto the establishment of faithful churches here in America. We pray also, Lord, for our economy 
And we ask, Lord, that you have mercy upon your people, upon your church, upon the poor Christians in particular, in which inflation hurts the most, that these things would slow down, God. We don't know exactly what to do, although sometimes we think we do. Um, Maybe others do. I don't know personally, nor what can be done, especially for the economy, uh, immediately at least, to help alleviate those who are suffering the most, having a hard time finding uh, family providing jobs, Lord, but rather there's many jobs, Lord, as the numbers show, that are just entry level, could do very little for growing a family. So we ask, God, that you have mercy upon your people, upon the poor in particular, and that we would help them as best we can to direct them and give them advice, to give them the funds perhaps they need if uh, they are in need for, Lord, you have given us deacons and you have given us funds in our church in particular, Lord, but also many churches across this nation for the good of those who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ, that they would be taken care of, that the world may know that we love one another and we take care of those in need in our midst, God. And so may we be able to do these things. May you direct your providence, Lord, for strengthening the economy, for the protection of the poor and the poor Christians in particular, God, to help us, God, to carry on as churches, to do what we can to help one another. We ask, God, that you would continue to be with us in providing what we need and we're thankful, Lord, for the snow, for the rain, and we pray for more, for we need it in the semi-arid land we find ourselves in here in Colorado. We pray in particular, God, for the farmers and the food and all that's entailed there, for those prices are growing up as well, and it becomes harder, Lord, in some regards, and we ask that uh, we would not have a shortage of these things, but rather, Lord, have what we need and have access to it, Lord, uh, and good sales or good funds or whatever else we need to that end, Lord, uh, that we may continue as churches for, as you know, Lord, you've created the church, which, is, which origin is supernatural, to be sure, but it lives here in the in the natural realm, God. And so we have to have funds, and the family members and individuals must have access to food and good-paying jobs, Lord. And so we pray for that and ask, Lord, these things will continue, and that those who are providing it for us, Lord, will also be blessed so that we can have such foods and water and good-paying jobs, Lord. But at the end of the day, God, to put all our trust in you that we would depend upon you and remind ourselves, Lord, when we get too anxious, that we are indeed strangers with you, as the psalmist says here. Not without you, but you are with us. We are sojourners, as our fathers were, Lord, in the Old Testament and the New Testament era. And so, God, we will not be here on earth that much longer, God. Help us, Lord, to persevere, to follow you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to cast our cares upon you. In your name alone we pray. Amen. We now have the tithes and offerings. Praise God from whom all blessings flow, Tim all creation. 
creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. We magnify your name on high, God, and again, thankful that we can come here this morning and that we would indeed trust you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Continue to praise you, Lord, and praise you, God, not with just our lips, but with the fruit of our labor as we give these tithes and offerings. Bless them, we pray, for the good of your kingdom. Amen. Let us sing hymn 451 while we are standing, 451. Approach my soul. Amen. You may be seated. We have the reading of the Ten Commandments, which is found in a green sheet inside your hymnal. Psalter hymnal is a green sheet. That way we have the same translation. The Ten Commandments, let us read it together. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, Out of the house of bondage, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves any carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, 
for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Hear also the words of our Lord Jesus, how he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Let us turn to our Bibles to 1 Peter 5. First Peter five seven. Let us listen attentively to the word of God. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Let us pray. With this exhortation, God, may it echo in our hearts as we are called by your grace to put our cares upon you, Lord, that we would not be drowning in worry and anxiety, God, but to know that you are in charge, that you love us, and that you, God, are indeed taking care of us in your way and your time. In your name alone we pray. Amen. As we know, mankind is born into trouble. Not like little toddlers bouncing into things, that's to be expected for them, nor Am I talking about awkward teenagers stumbling through life? But the trouble that comes upon all of us, young and old, evil politicians making life miserable, hateful co-workers and gossiping, our own sins and shortcomings. Man is born into trouble, as you recall, Job says. So trouble and difficulty easily overcome us, and overcome us, of course, under the right conditions. Sometimes we can persevere, but other times we do not. It makes us worrisome and anxious in those other times. Of course, some of us may have the opposite problem, not worrying about anything at all. There are people like that. Not having a care in the world. That's another sermon. Here, I want to hone in on this last part of this verse and equip you by God's grace to understand what it means to cast your cares upon our Heavenly Father. The first point is casting cares upon God. The idea, of course, the word there of casting is to throw your concerns upon Him. And to do that, something else must happen. Implied here, as it is implied in all moral activities. You're supposed to reject sin 
and embrace righteousness. It's twofold always. To put off unrighteousness and put on righteousness. And so he urges the Christians in the Mediterranean world there to cast their care upon him. He's saying to stop worrying. Stop the unnecessary anxiety. That's the negative part. On the flip side, of course, it means to trust in him, to rely upon him. The two are folded into this concept of casting, to take the burden of worry and anxiety and to throw it upon God. And he gives a reason for this, clearly, because God cares for you. He can say that because it's true. The creator of heaven and earth, the maker of the seen and unseen, he who formed the strong and the weak by the power of his word, God Almighty, who sits enthroned in the heaven of heavens, cares for you. You who are insignificant in this universe, let alone before the creator of all things. And yet he has deigned, condescended down to our level and says, I will care for you. Meditate upon that. That is, chew in your mind the reality that our God and Savior truly does care and has shown care for you and will and does indeed care and will continue to care for you. Is this not the best of all possible reasons to cast your care upon Him? To humble ourselves and to follow Him? Peter could have said, simply, stop worrying. Just stop it. It's God's command. And we know it is God's command. Christ reminds the disciples, as we're going to cross a little later, you can't add one cubit to your height by mulling it over and stressing about it. Throw our cares upon him. And it's sufficient that God says don't do it. But he does more. He appeals to God's love and concern for you. Because God does indeed love and care for you. Has he not? Has he not taken care of you and watched over you? We saw this already this morning in prayer time. When one of our members lost his car and it comes back, what, a week later? I don't know how long it was. I mean, you lose a car in Denver it's almost redundant, right? We, we're known for car problems and car thefts and things like that. That's why our insurance is so high. And he got it back, and it's working. <laughs> it hasn't blown up on him or anything. Isn't that amazing? It's not a miracle. It's not contrary to the laws of nature, or that is to say the laws of providence, how God directs and guides all things, but it's special providence, right? I preached on that last year. God has a special direction in in the flow of history for his people. And he shows by special tokens such as that, that he cares for us. He has indeed, as you know, fed you. As he promised, he feeds the birds of the air. Are you not better and greater than the birds of the air? He has clothed you as he has clothed the lily of the fields. He saves you with the everlasting blood of the covenant. He has done these things. This is evidence of his caring love and concern for you, brothers and sisters. God has indeed done these things. But let us look more carefully at what this care 
entails here in this text. What specifically does he want them to cast upon God? It just says, cast your care. What care? Any kind of care? Well, contextually, it seems persecution and troubles and heartaches. We know the rest of Peter, early on as we went through those chapters, he talks about these things. Yes, you should submit to the magistrate. Yes, you should submit to your boss, even the ones that are harsh for you and towards you. You should do the right thing even though you get the wrong consequences for it. That's hard. And yet he urges Christians to do that. It's not fair. And yet Peter, by the power of the Spirit, tells them, this is what you must do. For Christ suffered, and you will suffer, and you must do the right thing regardless. Sure, you're going to get punished for doing the wrong thing, he tells them. Obviously. Even unbelievers know that. But you still do the right thing even if you get punished for doing the right thing. That's the point. Perhaps for being Christians and followers, they're being persecuted. People are suspicious because it's a new religion. The Jews, of course, hated them more and more and didn't like the call of Christianity, which is to leave the Pharisaical ways. And they got persecuted, as we saw through the book of Acts, because of that. 1 Peter 2.20, as I alluded to uh, there, being punished for doing good. For what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, you take it patiently, if indeed you take it patiently. This is commendable before God. This is, I would argue, casting your care before Him. This is the right thing to do. But of course, with any care in life, even if the particulars here are about suffering for doing good or just general persecution for being Christian, whatever the case is, we should give it to God. Now, I think there are broadly three types of concerns we can categorize here, or cares. Caring about sinful things, I think we can all agree that's always wrong. <laughs> That's always wrong. Caring about non-sinful things, but with an improper or excessive caring. And so you can care about taking care <laughs> of your family, of putting food on the table and the like, but if you have excessive care about it, there is a problem. Or you can care about the wrong things because of the wrong priority at the wrong time. It's not inherently wrong to be concerned about a clean house and taking care of food. But if the circumstances change, like the President of the United States comes to your house, and you're back in the kitchen, working and working and never come out to greet the President, you've got wrong priorities there. And so we read in Luke 10, 41, that Martha was upset with Mary, who sat at Jesus' feet. This is a once-in-a-lifetime event, isn't it? <laughs> that Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, is there in the flesh. And taking care and being concerned about feeding your guests and being back in the kitchen and, and, and the like has its place. Yes. But when the circumstances change, then that becomes a problem. And so you can care about things in this life in a proper way, and then they're not wronged about caring about these things. They're non-sinful things. But if you do it in the wrong circumstances... That's a problem. So that's one type of care that you ought to cast upon God. This is not the time or the place. Put it upon God and adjust accordingly. Or it could be excessive worry about the right things. That's why I mentioned before improper caring. Is the word here, interestingly enough, is not always used in the New Testament to mean 
sinful worry, but just concern in general. You should be concerned about having food on the table. If you're not concerned, as I mentioned, some people have the opposite. At the beginning of my sermon, I said, some people have the opposite problem. They're lazy and they don't care. They ought to care. There ought to be some concern there. It's excessive concern that's the problem here in this text. Or undue concern. Disproportionate worry, for example. Suggested by um, the words relation, the, the Greek words you don't know, is related to distraction. There is a proper care. So there's caring about sinful things, always wrong. Caring about non-sinful things, but excessively or under the wrong circumstances, that's a problem. But there is a proper caring. As I said, it's the same word in 2 Corinthians 11.28. 2 Corinthians 11.28. Besides these other things, Paul writes, what comes upon me daily? My deep concern for all the churches. And nobody, I think, would argue that Paul is sitting here with his deep concern for all the churches. It's the same word. So he's talking about excessive worry and or worry or concern, I think it's a better word, concern under the wrong circumstances. Circumstances change, you have concern when you shouldn't, for example. So, Paul has a right object in mind. He's concerned with the church. Good, that's his job, for one thing. And as a Christian, uh, on another thing, he should love the church and want to be, and is concerned about the church. Even if you're not a church officer, you should have concern. And Paul has the right proportion of care. It's not disproportionate to the object, which is the church, which is a, a lofty thing to be concerned about. Everyone with me here? So the problem is, as is with most sins of the heart, that work out in actions of Christ and our, and our thoughts and our words, is, ex- is excess of it. It's not a sin to eat, but it's a sin to be gluttonous. right? It's the excess. And so the excess of worry and concern is the problem. And I think some of us already understood this, but I grew up in circles where it was just, you're just told you should never worry about anything. And by worry, they mean even concern. I use the word, if I'm, I apologize if I slide into the word worry. Sometimes I use the word worry neutrally to mean concern as well. Although I think we often use it negatively. You should never worry. You should have some concern, but I was told as a charismatic, no, no, you should never, never worry. Dude, how do you get anything done at work? You got a, you got a deadline. You got to get it done. It's excessive concern, excessive worry that binds you down and the like. That's what he's talking about. The dangers of excessive care we read about in Matthew 13, 22. Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word, and it becomes unfruitful. The cares of this world. Distracting kind of care is what he's talking about. Choke out the growth of the word. And so you don't take the church seriously. You don't take attendance to worship seriously. You don't take reading the word of God and prayer seriously. You're distracted by too many things in life. The cares of this world. That's where I, I mentioned the word is related to the idea of distraction. Where the priorities of life are out of order is another way of saying this. Given the circumstances again, right? You got to eat. <laughs> you got to sleep. And those are more important at times than other things in life. These, these priorities, secondary priorities, of course, change depending on the circumstances. The greater priority is that God is always 
over your Lord of your life and your Savior, and you do all things to his glory. That's true. And often with this distracting kind of care, with the priorities out of joint, often leads to sinful dwelling upon one thing like money in America and prosperity. Forgetting to spend time with families, for example, is a good illustration of this, where people are just working so much and obsessed with so much things, or bosses or companies are obsessed with so much with making money that, as in the case of one big company, they started the last few years to start delivering on Sunday. You're like, why would you want to deliver on You didn't deliver on Sunday before. Well, we can make what? More money, because that's where my care is. So that becomes obvious. You violate God's law, your care is in the wrong place. Luke 21, 34. Luke 21, 34, we read, But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this life. And the day comes on you unexpectedly. Now clearly here, uh, the list has sin, sinful activities here. You should never have care for the sinful things of life. But it's just in broad too, cares of this life or concerns of this life that lead you to sin, is perhaps what he's implicating here, or certainly weigh you down and distract you from what is important. So as I said, there are good cares, as Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians 11.28, that he has deep concern or care for the things for all the churches. We ought to have care for our family, and we ought to have care for working and obeying and submitting to the magistrate and following our boss, as Peter tells us in the prior chapters. He's not saying be uncaring about that, don't be concerned about that. What, what do I care? I have to just, you know, God's in charge and whatever happens, and there you go. No, a thousand times now. It's disproportionate worry. How to cast your care upon God, the second point. What does it mean? Is it just like meditation and, and all your burdens go away? Sometimes it happens. That is the meditation of prayer and reading the Bible, to be sure. Now, the context here, I think, is helpful. The context is humility. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares upon him. So that's added at the end. It's not the main verb, casting. You can hear it in English there. So it's assuming the prior idea of humbling yourself and submitting to God. And doing while doing that, you cast your cares upon God. And so part of casting your cares upon God is humbling yourself, which is what again? Knowing your place in this world. The humble are those who know their limitations, who know their calling in life, and they stick to it. And they don't, they don't get off the, the trail and assume there's something better, or assume there's something worse, or more inferior than their abilities have, for example. Both spiritually, as a, a Christian, for example, you know that you're mature or immature, or depending on the circumstances, more mature here and less mature there. That's humility, acknowledging that and living according in that light. And of course, your everyday natural ability, some of us are naturally quicker than others, and others are uh, naturally stronger than others, and you acknowledge that, not out of pride, but that's your humility before God. That God has gifted you with that, or not gifted you with something else. And you submit to it. So he says here, be humble. Humble yourselves before God. That itself is a way of casting your care upon him, I would argue, on the way the sentence is structured. Although not exclusively. Assumed in this, as it is the case with uh, all the Bible, you can't say everything in one given sentence. It assumes 
a heart of faith and love, doesn't it? To cast your cares upon God, you have to already believe that there is a God and that he is there and he cares for you, and that you love him and you believe in him, that you trust in him for your salvation. Hebrews 13, 6, we read, So we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. I trust in him, and so it drives out fear. I love him, and so I have confidence that he is for me. In other words, casting your care upon God is itself an act of faith and love. And it's assumed in the text and mentioned elsewhere in the Bible that we must have these states of heart, as it were, and of our mind. To cast our care upon God includes humility. that We need Him. We know our place before Him. We must have a faith and love in our hearts. And it must be done according to truth. In Matthew 6.24 we read, Therefore I say unto you, do not worry about your life. Right? This is Jesus speaking to the disciples. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? Clearly, you are limited in what you can do in that example there of worrying about adding one cubit to your stature. What can you do about that? I suppose today, I'll take growth hormones or something. Well, actually, you have a limit. You, you, you do that if you have a problem. You have a limit. Your genes limit your height, limit a lot of things. So it's obviously more negative. If you don't eat enough, you won't grow enough. If you don't eat good, good food and your mal- malnutrition, you won't grow enough. But growth hormones won't fix that. They didn't have that back then. The point being with that particular example, to know the truth of your situation, when you cast your cares upon God, part of that is, I acknowledge I can't change it. I can't change my height. I can't change my boss, perhaps. You're stuck in a job. Sometimes that happens, as I mentioned before. It's more and more happening. And you do what you can. You're limited. That's part of humility as well, right? You acknowledge your situation. You know the truth of the matter. That you can't add to or change the situation that you find yourself in, perhaps. 2 Timothy 1.7 is another passage to remind us uh, to look at things with truth. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. Therefore... Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me the suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. And so there, the apostle reminds them that you're going to suffer, and there's very little you can do, apparently. Here he is a prisoner. What can Paul do? Flee? Make a midnight escape? No, he knows his situation is very much limited. So he casts his care upon God in the truth of the matter, and that's what we are called to do, to be uh, to acknowledge and not make up things about our circumstances or ourselves. To say, this is how it is. I know my limits. I know I need to go to my Lord and Savior. And sometimes, as you read in Peter, that we cannot fight or do much about persecution. And so we are called to simply suffer for doing good, to follow Jesus. And our cares, therefore, should not weigh us down like a ton of bricks, something that we should be ashamed of, as Paul says, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me being a prisoner. That's not a shameful thing. That circumstances have been limited in God's providence. But to submit to God and to know that God is with us and has love for us, according to the power that he has given us. 
For God has given us a spirit of, not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. Prayer. The context is humility. The assumption is faith and love, as well as the truth of the situation. Some things we can do in particular, of course, are prayer. Having done all, when having done all, what you can to change circumstances, and you can do no more, you can always pray. Even if you can't pray with your mouth, you can pray with your heart. Philippians 4, 6, we read, Be anxious for nothing. That's a different word, interestingly enough. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So again, you can one way you can smother and kill this anxiety, this excessive worry and concern, is to pray before God with thanksgiving, and to make your supplication, bring your cares before God. Help me, Lord. Prayer puts things in proper perspective, and prayer calls upon God for grace and power. It's not a guarantee again. None of this is a magical formula. Oh, look, it's all gone. I have no cares in the world. I didn't say that. It will be a struggle, some more than others. But this is what we're called to do, to cast our cares upon our Lord and Savior. Not to give up, to pray every day, in and day out. Because God does care for us, and he has shown and given evidence of that in giving us the gospel of Jesus Christ the Holy Spirit within us, and so we desire to read his word and learn from him. Now, the bigger picture here, to quell any confusion, is to cast our care upon God does not mean you don't have to care about anything. I mentioned that before. and doesn't mean that any turmoil troubles in life will automatically go away. That's not promised here. He says early on in 1 Peter, there will be persecution. You are being persecuted for doing good. And Christ suffered, so don't be surprised that you're going to suffer. There's no promise that way. The big picture is that God is in control and God loves you and has a wonderful plan for you, as only you can say for believers. He cares for you. Just states it as a fact. And it means at least three things. You should trust in God's plan and his care for you. And that his care for the things that you're responsible for, the things that you can do something about, is what you should focus on in your life. And that your care should be proportional to the issue at hand. Brothers and sisters, God indeed loves you and cares for you. And God is for you. And so you can put your cares, cast them, take them off, and throw them at his feet. To meditate, perhaps here at the end of the sermon, on Romans 3, 38 and following. Paul declares, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love And I would say, therefore, the care of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us pray. We praise you, God, and we magnify your name for such encouraging words here from Peter.
the one who is quick to shoot off his mouth, Lord, and to stand for you, but also flee from you. Here, takes a bold stand of encouragement as a under-shepherd of God's church, as an apostle, Lord, to encourage the saints. And I pray, Lord, we have been encouraged this morning that we are called upon every day to cast our cares, to have a proportionate care, Lord, for the things of life, to care for your name and honor, for example, God, but above all, to put our cares upon you because you care for us. Amen. Let us stand and let us sing hymn 520, 520. of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. Amen.